Good morning. Today, we are continuing the series that Mike launched last week, which is going to take us all the way up to Easter, um, which is on the red letter promises, the promises of Jesus as recorded in John's gospel. I thought it might be uh, just a useful thing just to take a quick side note and make sure, I don't know if if everyone actually has or has seen a red letter Bible, just to point out what that means. If you look in certain, you know, certain Bibles, you will see lots of text that is printed in red. They're in red so that you can see that these are the words spoken by Jesus. So that's what we mean by the red letter promises. We mean promises that come from Jesus' own lips. And in particular, this series, we are considering um, the seven, what are called the seven I am sayings of Jesus. And these are sayings that where Jesus is conveying in each one a piece of who he is, something about his identity and his nature and what he brings to us. They are very bold, exclusive statements. They leave no room for there to be other saviors or other ways. They characterize, amongst other things, the uniqueness of Jesus and how he is the way, the truth, and the life. I recently read this book by Ravi Zacharias, who recently passed away, Jesus Among Other Gods. If, you're, if you want to dig into this more, the uniqueness of Jesus, I highly recommend this book. It is an intellectual exercise reading this book. If you've ever read Zacharias, you'll know he is a deep thinker, or was a deep thinker. Um, it's an excellent book. I really enjoyed reading it, um, and um, yeah, I'd highly recommend it, especially if you're in a position where, you, where either you or someone you know is thinking, well, I get this Christian thing, but I don't really see how that's different from, say, being a Muslim or a Hindu, or I don't really see why this would be right and those other ways would be wrong. This is an excellent book for addressing the unique claims, the exclusive claims of Jesus, um, and, and answering, it's actually a lot broader than that as well, answering um, you know, some things like, well, uh, what about the existence of evil in the world? How do you explain that? There's an excellent discourse um, that he gives in there about the, the existence of evil and, uh, and this, the biblical basis um, or the biblical explanation for, uh, for the existence of evil. Highly recommend it. In particular, today we're going to be considering, as you probably guessed, the saying, I am the light of the world. Now, this is not quite the first chronologically in John's gospel, although there are, there are several places where, where John and Jesus uh, himself both refer to Jesus as light, both before and after these verses that we're going to, to look at. We put it first in the series, at least, uh, well, I assume it's first in the series. I didn't put it first in the series, but we put it first because uh, it, it relates very closely to Jesus coming into the world, right? Being the light that has come into the world, which we, of course, have just been celebrating at Christmas. In fact, the first verse that I want to start with today to give some backdrop to this is a verse that should be very familiar to us, especially at the beginning of January every year, right? And that is Isaiah 9 and verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So Jesus is not, um, they would not have brought a new idea to Jewish thinking. The concept of light and God was already very present in Jewish thinking. And this concept of light dawning, I actually, I watched the sun rise this morning uh, briefly, and it was a fantastic reminder of what it feels like to see light dawning. If you haven't done that for a while, I highly recommend it, especially if you're like me, now's the time of year to do it, when the days are shorter and you don't have to get up at five o'clock to go and see the dawn, right? It's just take, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't do it to this extent this morning, but I, you know, I, I would love to, 
just go like walk somewhere, be outside, be away from distractions and watch the sunrise. It is a very uplifting experience to see that light breaking over the horizon. And it's a picture of what Jesus has done by coming, what Jesus did by coming into the world and other things around that. Because we can go back even further. We can go back to the opening verses of Scripture. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, which read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This is the very beginning of the history of the universe, and already we see the concept of light being associated with goodness by God. So like I said, this is not a new idea to Jewish thinking. It was probably deeply ingrained in their thinking, and it's no coincidence then that John actually begins his gospel account with the very same words, obviously written in Greek as opposed to Hebrew, in the beginning. But what he says is this. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And who is the Word? Jesus. Yeah, you can give the stock Sunday school. I'm not sure the answer, so I'm just going to say Jesus. Yes. (laughs) Correct. Right? Work this morning. Work with what Cammy was just doing this morning. Works not quite every time, but it's a good place to start. We actually, Marie and I were discussing something in the car on the way down here to do with our community group uh, meeting that's happening later, and we, we were talking about biblical examples, and she said, well, how about Jesus? And I just said, no, that's too easy. You can't have that one. That's, you know, you've got to think of other examples of purely human, not human and God combined. Anyway, in the beginning was the Word, was Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Revealing something of the mystery of the Trinity right there. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And here we go. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Why did John begin in this way? Because he wants to emphasize that Jesus has been there from the beginning, before the world began. And this is the first of several places in his gospel where we see Jesus referred to as light, either by John or by Jesus himself. But we're going to start this morning, or focus in a little bit this morning, by looking at the most direct of these statements. And that comes in John chapter 8. And Jesus is speaking to the people, and when he spoke again, well actually, before we read this, let's talk about what he's just been saying. Because it says when he spoke again to the people, well what was he doing right before this? If you go and look in John chapter 8, you will see the beginning of the chapter is the account of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, in public, in the light, in the presence, you know, in the sort of the epicenter of religious life in the Jewish world. Not hidden away somewhere, not out of sight, but right there in public. And the Pharisees bring in a woman who has been caught in adultery, and they point out to Jesus that under the law of Moses, she is to be stoned. What does Jesus do? Well, to start with, he just starts writing in the sand. I would love to know what he was writing, but we won't know this side of heaven, and maybe he won't tell us even, you know, afterwards. I don't know. I'm just curious. And then after a while, he looks up and he says, well, let the one of you who is without sin throw the first stone. And then he goes back to writing in the sand. And when he looks up again, they have all dispersed. And when he spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
It's really interesting that those two things come together because what is this? I said that these sayings tell us something about the nature of Jesus, about his character, about his uniqueness, about who he is. So first, the obvious, he is the light of the world. Light enables us to see. More specifically, in this case, it enables us to see when things are right and it also exposes when things are wrong. But it's worth noting, and I'm not going to go too far down this road because this is where a lot of the rest of our series is going to go, that it doesn't stop there. What Jesus has just done is given forgiveness to this woman and said, go and sin no more. He hasn't just exposed that which was wrong or acknowledged that which was wrong, which was exposed by the Pharisees in this case, but he has brought life and forgiveness. It's not just an act of pure judgment. It is judgment and then abundant grace that goes with it. It's really hard for me not to go straight off down that rabbit trail uh, because it's such an important thing, but it is going to come out in a lot of the rest of the series. And what I want to focus on this morning is the light aspect. So it enables us, he enables us to see when things are right and exposes when things are wrong. Have you ever tried walking in the dark? He says, Jesus says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. I don't mean taking the trash cans out at night when it's kind of dark. There's only a few lights on. You can sort of see where you're going. I mean dark, like you can't see your hand in front of your face. Here's a helpful picture for you. This is what it looks like to walk in the dark. When I was a teenager, I was an army cadet for about three years. We used to go on night exercises and you know, we thought we were heroes at 14 years old, obviously. And so we'd go out to these places, these army training grounds that we'd never been to before. And we'd go on night exercise, and it was dark. There were not any lights within a large radius, even in a small country like England. And you were on unfamiliar terrain. And maybe, if you were lucky, it was a moonlit night and you did actually get a bit of light. But maybe it wasn't, and it was dark. And we had things we were supposed to do, right? We were supposed to get to certain places, do certain things... But the results of being, you know, one of these cadets on night exercises mostly was that you would get muddy, scratched, uh, you'd trip over things, you'd fall in holes in the ground, you'd get lost in unfamiliar terrain. You can't see where you're going. It's almost like Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said in John 12, whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. So there's another exercise you can do if you want. Number one, get up and sit and watch the dawn sometime with as little distraction as possible. Number two, try and find somewhere really fully dark, whether it's the closet or the room, that, the bathroom that Camry was talking about, somewhere outside if you want to be more adventurous, bear country if you want to be really adventurous. Just see if you can find somewhere really completely dark and think about what is it like to try and walk around in this darkness. So that's the first point, and it's rather obvious, okay? But it's worth stating, Jesus is the light of the world. He allows us to see what is right and what is not right. But we're not going to stop here. There is something that's actually very unique about this saying. Of the seven I am sayings, there is something that is entirely unique about this one. What is that? It's the only one that is also applied to us. Let me give you some context here. This is from Matthew 5. Jesus is addressing the crowds at the Sermon on the Mount. He's not talking to the 12 or to a select group of people. He is talking to the crowds. And he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bushel. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's not often in Scripture that um, 
Phrases, terms that are used to describe God are also used to describe us. I didn't actually think, go, you know, in my preparation, think about any others that exist. I can't think of any off the top of my head. I'm sure there are maybe one or two. If anyone's got any thoughts, feel free to share them, chat them on Zoom or whatever. But, you know, I mean, is it, is it heresy? Is it heresy that we think we're the light of the world as well? Well, clearly not, because these are Jesus' own words. He's telling us that we are the light of the world. Would it be heresy for me to claim one of the other I am sayings? Yes, absolutely. If I were to stand up here and say to you, church, I am the way and the truth and the life, your response, hopefully, would be to heckle me off the stage, chase me out of the building, and, um, and then whatever else you may be, you know, petition for me to be deported back to England or something. I don't know. That would be heresy. But church, I am the light of the world, at least a part of it, and so are you. And that's a true statement. Let that sink in for a moment. We are the light of the world. How does this work? How is it possible? Well, this is one of those places where Jesus shows us his mastery of physics in the universe that he created. So you'd hope he has a mastery of physics, right? Light can come from a light source, or it can be reflected off another surface. An obvious example would be the sun and the moon. A number of years ago, I heard a hilarious little story about some missionaries who traveled in the 70s to a Pacific island nation and were witnessing to the, the indigenous people there. These people were moon worshippers. Here's a picture of somebody worshipping the moon for you, just to give you the picture. And when they had built up enough language to be able to communicate with these people, they asked the tribal chief, so why is it that you worship the moon? The tribal chief said, ah, moon gives us light. And so the missionary said, well, why don't you worship the sun? And the tribal chief said, ah, moon give us light when we need it. He was mistaking a reflection of light from the sun for the source of light. Now, it's a silly story, I know, but are we ever guilty of worshiping the things that reflect God instead of God himself? Do we put our hope in human greatness or ability as opposed to God's greatness and his grace and his boundless abilities? Do we put our faith in people and then presumably at some point suffer disappointment? We have to make sure that the Son, S-O-N, the Son of God, is the one who we worship. He's the one to put on a pedestal. Not a human leader, not in the church, not in the nation, not in the world, not in any human sphere. Jesus is the one who should be on the pedestal alongside God the Father. And Jesus himself gives a little more kind of background to this. In John chapter 12, it says, Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So Jesus is saying he is sent from the Father. In some way he is, it's, the analogy kind of breaks down a little bit here because he's reflecting the light of the Father, but he is also a source of light. So if we put our faith and our trust fully in Jesus, we reflect his light and thus the light of the Father. As James calls him the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. That is our calling. And that's point number two. Firstly, to recap, Jesus is the light. He allows us to see what is right and what is not right. Secondly, we are the light because we reflect God's light to those around us. We are not the source of light, but we are able to reflect it or carry it into the world. This brings us to the obvious question, how are we to be light? It's all very well talking about this in a kind of theoretical academic sense, like, okay, get it, yep, light of the world, check, I'm going out the door. But what, what does that mean you do? Well, let's turn to, we're staying in John's writing, but we're going to turn to 1 John, 
first of his letters, right towards the end of the New Testament. And John writes in the first, first chapter of his first letter, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in that position where God's word has no place in my life. So what does John say? He says we must have fellowship with Jesus. That's where this starts. We must take the time to be with him, to listen to him, to share our thoughts, hopes, cares, burdens with him, to read what he says to us. If we have fellowship with him, that brings us into fellowship with one another. That's what he says in verses six, seven, eight, right? If we have fellowship with him, but don't, and, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live the truth. But if we live, we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship not just with him, but with one another. This is how we achieve unity and fellowship as believers by clinging first and foremost to Jesus, because he is our source of light. He is our source of truth. He is dependable. He won't let us down or disappoint us at any point. He won't lead us astray. He won't have uh, well-intentioned but misconceived ideas that take us off on a wrong path, because he's perfect. So that's the third thing. Actually, there are two further things to come out of this. So quick recap. Number one, Jesus is the light. That much was obvious, but worth stating. Number two, we are the light as we reflect God's light in the world. And two further things. Firstly, we are called to walk in the light. There is a calling for us to do something in response here. And number four, we must cling first and foremost to Jesus as we start doing that. But there's a warning in John, and just the verses that come very soon after the ones that I've just read. The second chapter of First John. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother is still in in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. It's that same picture. Imagine being in absolute darkness. You do not know where you're going because the darkness is blinding. And what does it mean to hate? Well, some other ways to put hate might be to regard someone with extreme ill will, to have a passionate aversion to someone or something, or a passionate dislike of that person or thing, to treat someone as an enemy. And so this is really where the rubber meets the road. I want to be clear that in what I'm about to say, there is definitely not intended to be any kind of political message. Okay? So if you perceive one, then ask two things. First, be assured that it's not intended. Second, come and speak to me, please, so that we don't have anything kind of lingering between us. I'm not here to make a political statement. Yep, sorry, was there an objection in the back? No? Okay, right, moving on. I'm not here to make a political statement. I'm here to make a biblical statement that speaks into our current situation. For a number of reasons, this past year has been one of uncertainty, anxiety, discord, and that's fueled disagreement and conflict and violence in this nation. We saw it last summer in the riots and the looting that occurred as part of the um, racial demonstrations. 
We've seen it again this week in the events at the U.S. Capitol. Whilst we hope and pray that the violence will cease, we know, if we just look at, our, look at ourselves, look at our society, we know that the discord and the animosity that fuels it will last at least for some time, perhaps indefinitely, right, until Christ's return. Who knows? We may look at other believers in these times and see vast differences of opinion in some areas. But we are going to spend eternity with those brothers and sisters and many others that we do not look like, do not sound like, do not agree with on a great many things perhaps. So if we're able to claim that we're in the light and yet harbor hatred, harbor an intense dislike against a brother or sister and that doesn't cause us a problem, then John is telling us we are still in the dark. If the spirit is living in us, it should be grating against that hatred convicting us of the truth. We've had a couple of messages in the last several months that have touched on unity in the body. If you want to go back and dig into more of the background of this, uh, Tony Pearson spoke about it last July, July 26th, if you're taking notes and you want to go find this. Tom spoke about it in October, October 25th. Go back and listen to those messages. I don't want to leave any perception here that we are supposed to be good enough in some sense or that we have to earn our salvation in any sense. We know scripture is 100% clear that salvation is by the grace of God through faith in him. So if we struggle with another believer, another brother or sister, that's okay. But if we're able to harbor hatred against them and that not be a problem to us, like for us to try and hold those two things in tension, we are off the mark and we're in the dark still. Okay, that's my warning. We could go back to those previous verses that we were just looking at in 1 John. He specifically says, if we, sorry, get the right slide, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John recognizes that he is sinful, that we are all sinful, save for Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so this is not about pseudo-faith by works. This is about our attitudes towards each other and in particular towards those with whom we do not agree. And I want to just point out something for a second. Hate is not a sin by definition. Hate is not a sin by definition. Consider these words in Romans 12. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Hate is not a sin in and of itself. We are allowed to have a passionate dislike of that which is evil. Indeed, we are instructed to have a passionate dislike of that which is evil. But we are called to be devoted to one another in love, to honor one another above ourselves. And this applies not just within Oak Ridge. It applies outside of Oak Ridge. It applies outside of the parts of the church that we most identify with. It applies to all those in the global universal family of believers. I was considering as part of this message to put up some photos of people who are prominent people in society, in the world, who are professing Christian believers. And as examples, are like these are people that you may not agree with on certain things, but they are all professing Christian believers. I didn't in the end because I, I couldn't decide who to put without it seeing, seeming like I was de- you know, very deliberately picking specific people. So I'm not even mentioning any names right now. <laughs> Because my goal here is not to try and cause offense or to try and really like rile people up. It's just to point out that there are divisions in the church, right? Let's just state an obvious fact. But we are called to see each other first and foremost as brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we will spend eternity and everything else flows from that. So that takes us to our fifth and final point. Quick recap. The obvious first, Jesus is the light of the world. He brings light so that we can see. 
so that we are not stumbling around in the darkness, so that we can know what is true and what is good and what is not good. We are the light of the world because we are to reflect and carry Jesus' light into the world. We are not the source of it. We are the bearers of it or the reflectors of it. And we are called to walk in his light. We need to cling first and foremost to Jesus as our source, as our truth, as our savior. And we must love our brothers and sisters. We must honor one another above ourselves. I want to close with... Um, Some verses actually from earlier in John's gospel, one of the first places where Jesus is talking about light. This is in his discourse, his discussion with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. We've actually just finally got around to watching some more of the Chosen series, and it's fascinating seeing the person of Nicodemus that they have in in that series. I love how thought-provoking it is. There's obviously a lot of that series that is, it's made up, right? And we could, I'm sure, pick holes in the way they've done particular things. But what I love about it is the way it prompts us to think, what was this situation really like? Capernaum wasn't a very big place. So these people did probably all know each other. It's not round. When we read about the calling of the disciples and we read like, well, you've got Matthew over here, the tax collector. You've got, you know, you've got Peter and Andrew, Simon and Andrew. Um, you've got uh, John and James, son of Zebedee. It's like, well, I imagine they would have all known each other because it wasn't a very big place and society was very different then. It provoked some interesting thoughts for me. Anyway, Nicodemus and Jesus. And Jesus says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Obviously, he's talking about himself. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God, in the open, in the light, in plain sight, just as Jesus went into the temple courts to pray and to teach in front of the people and the leaders. Another way in which he is our example. This is what we're called to. It can be uncomfortable sometimes to be in the light. It makes us feel vulnerable, especially if what's around us is in darkness. If you've ever been on a stage or in another position where you are lit up and you cannot see the people around you, it's disconcerting. It makes us feel very vulnerable. It's not a place that we naturally gravitate to, but it is good to be in the light. That is what God is telling us. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God, that we can speak and act with a clear conscience before God doing his work, speaking his truth among people. So don't forget, this is the only one of the I am sayings that we can actually claim for ourselves, that we can walk out ourselves in our lives. So let us look, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, never to repay evil with evil, but always strive to do good for one another. And as John says here, let us live by the truth and let us walk in the light. Amen.